0: For half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at
1: 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. So happy to have today's guest with us. One of the originals. He is a Hall of Fame inductee in 2014. He is the class of 1976. And if you've met him as he's been coming back in recent years, you know what a great guy he is. And I feel bad that we only have limited time with him today because when I get on the phone with him, we seem to talk for hours. Mr. Greg Hernandez, welcome to the podcast.
2: John, thank you very much. And thank you for putting these podcasts together. They are just incredible. I've enjoyed uh, all of them thus far. And you're just doing a terrific job. It's a, I believe what Scott McFarlane is right. I know you from school, but decades apart.
1: Exactly, let's go with that. And I appreciate the fact that you are in your audiobook Narration Studio, which makes my job as an editor, of course, a lot easier. So the <laughs> sound quality is fantastic. Tell me how you first ended up at Syracuse and the radio station.
2: Well, in high school, in junior year, uh, I took a journalism class. And that was when the bug hit. I went to the local library to find out what reporters did, and it was really funny because it was a little index card uh, that the librarian gave me that said, reporters work long hours for low pay. Yeah, they knew that even back then, okay. Yeah. And so at the time, uh, I thought, okay, this thing Eyewitness News, WABC in New York started, mm-hmm. and I said to my journalism teacher, is it all right if I call them to do an interview with the two new anchors, Roger Grimsby and Bill Butel? And everybody else in the class said, oh, they're not going to talk to you. And I didn't realize it. it was my philosophy at that moment. But I said, it doesn't hurt to ask. Right. So I called and Roger Grimsby said, yeah, come on in. So here I am in the ABC studios in Manhattan. And we did an interview with my little tape recorder. And then he introduces me to this young reporter, Geraldo Rivera, ha, who had just made his name with this big Willowbrook, New Jersey story. And uh, Howard Cosell and Tex Antoine, the weatherman. And uh, it was just amazing. Uh, And so I'm sitting there. He takes me around the newsroom. And not only does he let me see the live broadcast, he lets me see it from inside the studio. Oh, wow. from where he's sitting at the anchor desk. And so I'm this, you know, 17-year-old kid just like couldn't believe this was happening. So then I write a story for the, the class paper And then I become a reporter for the school paper. And then I thought, well, let me do an interview with Bill Butel. So I call him and he said, come in. And then all of a sudden, this guy who was doing sports at the time, former New York Yankees pitcher, Jim Bounton walks in and he says, I I saw you talking to Bill Butel. Tell me what he told you. And it was just like amazing stuff. So it's like, you know, you're this kid and I thought I got to keep calm, take it all in and uh, had a great time. So I became uh, editor-in-chief of the high school paper, but I also convinced the principal senior year that I should be able to do a job, a little show called News and Music for the lunchroom. Hmm. And he agreed. And there I was through the intercom doing a music show and news items for the students. And from there, I started researching schools. Syracuse always popped up as a really good journalism school. So it was a no-brainer. So the only big hurdle for me was making sure that I continued to be the nerd that I always a- have been and maintained that average because there was no way I could afford Syracuse. I got in with a full scholarship. Wow! I was very lucky. I got full scholarships to Columbia and Fordham, but I said Syracuse is it and the rest is history.
1: You lived that story before many of us did, of doing the high school announcements and, and things in high school and talking to journalists in our hometowns and getting it bitten by the bug and wanting to go there. You were a couple of years after the original guys. Were you there when the station first started or was it there when you got there? It
2: was uh, already there, but I wasn't part of it. I got lucky because freshman year, which now is 50 years ago, at this time, 50 years ago, I was wrapping up my freshman year at Syracuse University, which is Amazing to say that, you know, when you start saying 50 years, half a century, you know, all that stuff. But uh, I was lucky that I was the only freshman that semester to make it to an on-air anchoring position at WAER. Okay. And so I did the news on Saturdays, and then in the spring, Bill Bliley, with whom I was going to school with in the Newhouse School, said, Hey, we're thinking about starting this other station. Would you be interested? And then I thought, yeah, you know, I was doing news from the Quonset huts at the foot of Mount Olympus, okay. and literally those things leaked cold. I literally would write the news with my coat on, with a red nose as uh, red as Rudolph the Rednose reindeer. <laughs> and then when word came out that W A E R was going to get this state of the art studio in the new Newhouse Two building, Bill showed me all this equipment laying on the floor. You know, at some point later in '73. I said, well, if you know how to put that together, I'll be on it. And uh, (laughs) so I credit Bill Bliley with being the visionary for this thing. Mm -hmm. It was just amazing how it just began. And we were at Campus Conveniences, which was basically, if you look at the picture, it's like a single family home next to the brand new Newhouse 2 building. Okay. And it just towered over this building, and we were on the second floor with all this equipment scattered all over the place, it would be unusual for me to be doing a show and Craig Fox literally crawling underneath all the equipment trying to tweak things. <laughs> but, you know, that's what we did. I could look out the window on the campus, you know, at the time because there was no new house 3. So I narrate audiobooks, and uh, there's a series called Yestertime, which is time travel. And so every time I go into Newhouse 3, I feel I'm going into a time portal. I'm going to go into campus conveniences there and, <laughs> and wind up on the WJPZ 1200 studios.
1: Uh, I will say, Greg, you have done a lot of prep leading into this podcast. You sent me some documents, and I'm going to find a way to link to them in the show notes. You sent me a coverage map of WJPZ 1200 AM nonstop rock, a local rate card. You've got uh, drive spots for 25 for a 60 second spot, a dollar for a 10 second spot. Uh, you've got all this great stuff you sent me about WJPZ. WJPZ is a commercial AM radio station under the supervision of Syracuse University. WJPZ operates continuously 24 hours a day. Uh, Probably consists of a tasteful blend of top 40 music and popular album cuts for a maximum audience of college-age adults. Uh, WJPZ adheres to a strict commercial limit of eight minutes per hour. And then you've got a playlist on here. It's got Hooked on a Feeling from Blue Suede. It's got uh, Piano Man from Billy Joel. Mockingbird from Carly Simon and James Taylor. Benny and the Jets from Elton John. And so on and so forth. This is really cool stuff. A really cool artifact that I'm glad you were able to dig up that I'm going to
2: link to here in the show notes. It helps to be a pack rat, so uh I've had that stuff. It's really some of the rate cards, I've had them put away in such a way that they are still bright white, as if they were brand new from 1973.
1: Yeah, they're perfect, as I'm looking at them on my screen here. And then you've also got a list of advertisers, uh, or potential advertisers on here. Acropolis Pizza, which unfortunately uh just went the way of the Dodo, unfortunately, but... uh Varsity Pizza, Cosmos, Hungry Charlie's, uh, Orange Student Bookstore, Drex Subs, uh, University Smoker—I assume that was uh, cigarettes and not uh, barbecue in those days.
2: Uh yes, it's, it's you know <laughs> head shop as they used to call them in those days.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> Emerson's Limited, Etna Life and Casualty, Air Force Recruiting—I mean, this stuff is gold. So I'm so glad you were able to hang on to it and, and share it for the podcast.
2: Oh yeah, I have to give uh, credit to Alki. Mavrikides, uh, who was the owner of uh, Acropolis Pizza. Mm-hmm. He was amazing. Acropolis Pizza originally was on Westcott a- a- Street. Okay. And I would walk out there and try to sell him the advertising because I was a sales manager, so I would get 15% of any sales. Mm-hmm. And so that was really good beer money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially when beer was like a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I would go there. He could not hear the station at all at Westcott Street, because he was not facing Day Hall transmitter. But on faith, he would always buy advertising. And so the first year, basically, a lot of people thought of WJPZ as the Acropolis Pizza Station because that commercial ran ad infinitum. (laughs) (laughs) And back in those days, it was a commercial,
1: not a sponsorship, right? You could actually sell commercials, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, we sell spots. And uh, and that was the beauty of the thing uh, with WJBC in the beginning. We actually sold spots, made money, uh, just like a real radio station. And, uh, you know, obviously that went to buying equipment because Bill Bliley, he also bought some of the equipment himself. Wow. So, you know, we were very fortunate that some of that income was coming in. But it was, it was. I tell you, I, I wish I had a way of uh, measuring my steps because I certainly <laughs> put in, I didn't have a car, so I walked to all these places. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the winter can be a challenge there in Syracuse.
1: Walking from the campus to Westcott in the dead of winter, well, that's probably a universal truth that anybody <laughs> listening knows what a trek that would be, okay. So, you know, so we were
2: very lucky how Everything was mirroring exactly what it is to work a radio station, you know, from on air. Um, I used to have a show on Friday and Saturday nights from uh, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. And uh, we could expand the playlist a little bit at night to more a little bit album oriented rock as it was known in those days mm-hmm. it's you know people were at the dorm at day hall and partying away and i would be packing my albums that i bought at spectrum records uh yep. to supplement the music library but i had a blast and uh, it was always fun when people actually called the studio to say they wanted to request a song it was uh, the most amazing experience that you could ever have practically you know without having actually working at a radio station
1: And how far had the station come technologically between when you guys first put it on the air uh, up until when you graduated? I
2: think when I graduated, thankfully, Dr. Wright came along in 1974. Mm -hmm. So I call Bill Bliley the visionary and Dr. Wright the guiding light. Okay. Because without Dr. Wright, uh, this could have fallen apart. But we got a carrier current license, which increased the power because initially it was one-tenth of a watt Mm -hmm. and we used to joke that your average light bulb has more power (laughs) so if you were not facing day hall you were not listening to WJPZ but I was always amazed how many people were listening to WJPZ and telling us about it you know on campus and uh, then as people got to find out about it in the Newhouse School they were starting to volunteer in greater numbers and so like in the fall of 73 that's where things really started to pick up we started to broadcast uh, longer hours Because in in the overnight, we would simulcast uh, W-A-E-R. Okay. And then that changed in 74. It just became more of a constant W-J-P-Z, you know, nonstop rock.
1: And like you said, not a lot of people could hear the radio station, but people were coming out in droves to either interact
2: with the radio station or be on the radio station, right? Correct. And uh, I found out recently, because my daughter just graduated from Syracuse in May, And uh, she was one of the uh, SU 100 students uh, who did the tours. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went there, and one of the uh, women in the administration office told me that she grew up uh, listening to WJPZ. And my daughter was saying that this woman was very excited to meet uh, somebody from WJPZ. I thought, oh, my God. It's like, you don't realize that it's not just Syracuse University that this impacted. This impacted the city of Syracuse. WJPZ was another radio station that people could listen to in the city. It wasn't just a campus thing.
1: It's funny. uh, These generations that come, you know, I interviewed Lauren Levine for the podcast. She graduated in 2010. She grew up in Syracuse. I graduated in 02. We did the math and realized that she might have been listening to me on her middle school bus, (laughs) you know, back in the day. Or that Melody M., who graduated in either 20 or 22, that her mom grew up listening to the guys in the 90s. It's funny how this cycle just perpetuates for 50 years now.
2: Right to me, it's been such a gratifying thing because when you're a student, as you know, you're thinking about your studies, the classes, you know, friendships and stuff like that. And if you're working at WJPZ, that's a, another load you're carrying and part of your you know daily life there on campus. And you you know you graduate and you move on. You're thinking about career as next stop. Never did I ever think that 50 years later that WJPZ. This little band of people got together, had this idea, made it happen, and little did we think it would continue after we graduated. Because, you know, once you graduate, you're moving on to other things. You're not worried about what's happening to the station. I have to give credit to the uh, WJPZ Alumni Association because I consider it uh, one of the best organizations on this planet. Agreed. Because they have kept WJPZ front and center at Syracuse University. They have made it the organization where it just keeps this WJPZ family together because it is a family. Because When I was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2014, it was the first time I came back to Syracuse in winter. After I graduated, I worked at two local radio stations there in Syracuse. So I became a, a citizen of Syracuse. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy the city. But I had had enough of 100-plus inches of snow. <laughs> I had had many run-ins with real life-threatening times with snow. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it's time to go. So when I left in seventy nine, I said, Okay, I'm not coming back to Syracuse anymore in the winter. But I would come back for my reunions. Uh, so I would started coming fifth, tenth, fifteenth and twentieth, but in the summer when they used to have the reunions in June. Okay. Because Syracuse in June is a beautiful time to be in upstate New York. Oh yeah. And so all of a sudden I get a call from Scott McFarlane out of the blue. And I had been watching him here in Washington local WRC, great investigative reporter. And I thought, you know, he asked me, are you one of the founders of JPZ? He said, like, yeah, yeah. And so he, he told me about the whole uh, induction thing. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing because I have to tell you, John, that over the years, whoever put together the WJPZ paper newsletter was amazing detective because every time I moved, that newsletter found me. And I thought, this was years before internet and all that stuff. They always managed to find my new address. And that's how I kept track with what was happening with the organization. Because, you know, I would say, oh, you know, they have all these listings from the 80s and on. It's like, hey, you know, what about us in the 70s? And, you know, it was also incumbent on us from the 70s to have said something. But I was very happy to hear what was happening and how people were just like building this thing continuously. And so uh, when I got that call from Scott, I thought, well, this is it. It was great to be back in 2014. And every time I go back, it's one of the highlights of my year. And I have to tell you, I've done so, what I consider some cool things in my career and life. But being inducted into the Hall of Fame at WJPZ is the greatest honor I'm ever going to have in this life. Wow, that's powerful stuff. It's
0: WJPZ. It's WJPZ.
1: Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ
0: relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence... This is WJPZ at 50.
1: You mentioned, Greg, other stuff you've done in your career. Take me through your career after graduation and what you've done in the time since.
2: Yeah, when I graduated, I moved out to the suburbs in Camillus, and I worked for, uh, of all places, because there were no jobs at that time, AT&T. Okay. Now, they were in the beginning of digitizing phone records, customer phone records. Okay. So there I am in this uh, clunky little computer Digitizing this stuff, mind-numbing stuff. But there were no radio jobs. So then, in summer of '77, I got hired for WKFM and WOSC was a, a daytimer in Fulton, New York. Mm-hmm. So it was about a forty-minute drive from Camillus, and so I did the overnight uh, news on WKFM, and then at five o'clock, I would uh, start writing the news for the morning anchor at WOSC, the daytimer. You know, that lasted for about a year, and then I thought it was time to move on, so I got a job over at WMBO and WRLX in Auburn, New York, where I was an anchor and reporter. hmm And I just had this thing, I have to work for ABC News. It was in my blood, I have to work for ABC News. Back to your high school days, it was still in your head. It was still there, and I thought, you know, I started doing the long-distance interview thing, coming down to Washington, because I fell in love with Northern Virginia, In 1978, when I came down here to do the tourist thing, and I thought, oh, boy, that Northern Virginia is great, and I could, you know, if I get a job in D.C., it's right across the way. And so, uh, you know, it was the usual catch-22. It's like, you don't have Washington experience. It's like, yeah, but I'm a reporter. You know, it's like, it's the news. Sure. And so I finally thought, this is where I want to be, so I moved without a job. And a month later, I started working for Mutual Radio as a news writer, I worked there five years, and that's where I got to meet Larry King, uh, Jim Bohannon, and just uh, a wonderful cadre of uh, reporters and anchors. But I started knocking on ABC's door. And eventually, two years later, I got in June of 84. uh, They hired me as a news writer reporter and spent the rest of my broadcast career there, where I was very fortunate. I got to uh, one day... World News Tonight used to be done out of the D.C. Bureau. Mm -hmm. And there comes Peter Jennings into the radio newsroom. And uh, the editor said, oh, can you work with Peter on his radio commentary called Jennings Journal? I said, of course. And so I'm sitting there, I'm reading a script. And I thought, oh, my God, there's a grammatical error. Do I tell Peter Jennings that he has grammatical error in his script? Oh, boy. And I thought to myself, well, they assigned me as editor. And I certainly do. And so I, I pointed it out to him. And that became a great working relationship. Five years later, I don't know why I thought of this, I said, Peter, can you do me a favor? Would you be willing to record my outgoing message for my phone at home?
1: <laughs> and I gave him a little
2: script. He looked at it and said like, sure, as long as you promise me not to sell it. And so I put it on my phone and it was really funny. One day I came home, was listening to the messages in the old cassette thing. And somebody called me and said, Uh, This is a wrong number, but I'm glad I dialed it. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Jenny, I added the World News theme and Jennings said, Hi, this is Peter Jennings. Greg's not here right now. He's out gallivanting. Please leave a message. Oh, that's great. It was great. And uh, because of today's digitizing of audio, I've never played it in public because it would be too easy to record it and probably, you know, put your own name in there. But I, on occasion, I'll, I'll put it on my phone and play it for people and stuff because I, I did digitize it, and, and it's a great memory. And one of the best things was for 10 years, I was the uh, producer of the radio version of This Week with David Brinkley. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, 29 minutes, 30 seconds for the radio version, and one day the challenger blows up. Yeah, And they have a guest that has a, a model of the challenger. Every sentence began with, as you can see. And I thought, in radio, you cannot see. <laughs> and I, so I thought to myself, okay, I need to write a script, and hopefully David Brinkley will come up here and record that so we can throw that into the radio version. I called down to the TV desk, and they said, yeah, he'll be right up. And there comes David Brinkley, goes into the studio, does it a la Brinkley style, And we began another relationship like that. And uh, every time I needed anything for the radio version, David Brinkley would come into the studios and we'd chat. And it was a wonderful time that I was there. And then, of course, down a couple of floors below me was Ted Koppel, who was uh, a Syracuse undergrad. Ha! And uh, one time, I used to always do, for a while there, tours of the ABC facilities for Syracuse alumni. Mm -hmm. There were big programs, so one time I had like 50 alumni coming to the bureau. It was this lineup of Sam Donaldson, Ted Koppel, and John Bascom. He was my radio colleague who had just followed people who escaped the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Wow. To say, this is the trek that these people took to escape Nicaragua. But what happens that moment? Ronald Reagan decides that he's going to tell the world what he knew of the Iran-Contra affair. Huh. And so it was a special report at 8 o'clock at night And this was a 7 o'clock event. And I thought, oh, my God, what is going to happen to this program? I've got 50 Syracuse University from the university, too, alumni in this building. 55-0. Yeah, 50. I thought, oh, my God. And so Sam Donaldson calls me from the White House and says, I'm sorry, Greg, I can't do the program because they're asking me to do a live shot for the second World News Tonight feed. And I thought, okay. So I went down to Ted Cobble's assistant. I said, how does it look for Ted? And what happened was Peter Jennings, who was the anchor, he was in London. Hmm. And so they tapped Ted Koppel to do the special report at eight. So he had to prep for that. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is all falling apart. So John Bascom starts telling his story about the, uh, the people he follows from Nicaragua. He told a great story and he was there for half an hour, no break. And then 7.30... Ted Koppel is at the doorway. John, without skipping a beat, says, and my colleague here, Ted Koppel, is ready to talk to you. He talked to the Syracuse folks for about 20 minutes, left, anchored the show, and as I'm giving people the tour of ABC facilities, he's on the air, and so is Reagan as we're walking around the building. And years later, people said, oh my God, I remember that tour. I couldn't believe it happened. And that to me, was the first day of the beginning of my graying of my hair.
1: (laughs) So, just so I have the timeline right, so Koppel comes in with you from 7.30 to 7.50, and then he's live on the air at 8.00. Do I have that? Correct. Wow.
2: It was seamless. It was as if it was all planned all along. You know, and I thought this was too much luck going on here. That is something else.
1: What's interesting to me is here you are in D.C., you're at ABC., and you're the radio guy. You're working with this A-list talent, names that all of us recognize from the business. I've got to imagine some of your time at JPZ influenced you to be on the radio side of things as opposed to TV.
2: Yes, as a matter of fact, that's a good question because when I got to ABC, my original intent was to go to TV. But once I got to ABC Radio... I just fell in love with radio even more. Mm-hmm. And that's where I wanted to stay. So the whole idea of being a TV correspondent went out the window and I stayed. And it was great because I would do long-form reporting for uh, programs and, uh, and just do a lot of things that I wanted to do in radio, uh, interviews. And one of my favorite things, because I worked Sunday through Thursday for most of my time there, after This Week with David Brinkley aired, if Sam Donaldson, who was the White House correspondent at the time had something breaking that moment. He would come to radio, he would take his pen and hit the uh, fire drill bell. And I would know instantly that Sam is about to walk into the radio newsroom (laughs) and he would say, stop the presses. He would sit down at the typewriter, write out his scripts and record it. And we would have breaking news on radio. Wow. There were times where I was, you know, we would air a story on ABC radio. And I would, the phone would ring in the bureau, and it would be Ted Koppel saying to me, Hey, I was in the car listing, and uh, you might want to check this particular fact. Wow. And so, you know, I stayed there, and in March of 1994, the radio business had changed quite a bit especially at the network level. Sure. That's when I left ABC Radio and Broadcasting. And uh, for 24 years after that, I became a spokesman for three federal agencies NOAA the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and then uh, the U.S. Mint, and then I spent my last 10 years in government at the FDIC at the height of the financial crisis. Right. And at NOAA, I got deployed to Cape Cod to find the plane where John Kennedy Jr. had crashed. Wow. And it was a NOAA ship that found it, and uh, there I am in a scrum when we were about to distribute a map of where the wreckage was found And I have a picture in my Instagram feed where you see all these hands around me from reporters trying to grab at the chart. And uh, because there was literally an army of reporters there. And uh, so I finally put my hand up. It's like, hey, look, I'm going to give you a chart, but stop grabbing. (laughs) (laughs) So I did that. And then they deployed me to Hurricane Floyd down in Florida. And then at the U.S. Mint was really interesting. I found out from being there and all these coins being put out for collectibles and gold and silver coins, I didn't realize I had so many friends who were closet coin collectors. (laughs) You know, they were trying to hit me up for uh, any news on this particular coin coming out. You know, so it was was people who knew me uh, just uh, always trying to pump me for information about coins. The dollar coin, which never took off, was at the time being promoted. And so we would go around to the president's homes. So I remember being at Andrew Jackson's home in Nashville and we came up with this way of selling the coin. So we called it the money shot huh. for TV. We would take a, a bag of 500 coins, dollar coins, and then we would do the pouring out of the coins onto a table. And so that was the big media thing. And they were all the, you know, Andrew Jackson and that went down to, uh, uh, up into Albany, uh, Martin Van Buren. And so that was, you know, I got the beats of interesting people at those presidential homes. My favorite story was the John Tyler home down near richmond mm-hmm. i call harrison tyler who was the grandson of john tyler and he was still alive and it was the only uh, house where the family of a former president from that era was still living in it oh wow i asked him if he wanted to, us to do this event there and so he said yes and all of a sudden a day later i get a call from painie tyler his wife and she had this very thick southern accent and she said mr hernandez If you want to do an event in my house, I would say you speak to me from now on. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how we worked it. We did the whole money shot thing. And uh, the night before the event, we had finished the planning. And as five o'clock rolled around, uh, Miss Tyler said to me, uh, Mr. Hernandez, would you like a scotch? And I said, well, it is five o'clock, but I don't drink scotch. And she says, how about a bourbon? And I says, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> so there I am drinking bourbon in John Tyler's home. It was just amazing, you know. So, uh, and then that was the, the last event for me at the Mint. And then uh, I was a financial reporter at Mutual and ABC Radio. It was really funny at ABC Radio because I was always volunteering to cover the Paul Volcker hearing. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to do that. They said, oh, God, those things are boring. I said, yeah, they might be boring to you, but they make a lot of news.
1: They're consequential, yeah. But
2: he was the chairman of the Fed at the time, right?
1: When they raised the interest rates in the eighties, do I have that right?
2: He was. He was. Yeah. The person that I bounced whatever he said off was Alan Greenspan. Ha. Huh. So when uh, Volker would do his thing, I would call to the newsroom in New York and say, "Hey, hey, this is the news. This is what Paul Volcker just said." Of course, had the lead story. And so, years later, when Alan Greenspan gets tapped to be the Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, That number that I used to call them in Manhattan, all of a sudden, like unlike today, was disconnected. Yes. So so from there and then the FDIC, when I left NOAA was because after Hurricane Katrina, I was the uh, media contact for that storm. Oh, wow. We had put out, the NOAA airplane had done a survey of the uh, Gulf Coast, and we literally put on the internet 1,000 photos, I think 3,000 photos, of the area that the plane took. They were all geotagged and everything, but they were not searchable. All of a sudden, I get a call from somebody by a new Google Maps. It says, hey, we could help you do a search. And so they put together a little search engine and they could, you know, they say, hey, I, I lived at 134 Canal Street in, in New Orleans. Can you look that up? And we could. And if we had a photo, the correspondent, I could say, somebody called me one day and said, can you tell me if my mom's home is still there? wow and i would look up the address and i would say i'm sorry sir all i'm seeing is a slab of cement at that address oh. and then the person on the other end starts crying oh. and that happened multiple times and I, that's what i became burned out with weather because weather happens daily mm-hmm. and i thought i can't do this anymore this is too much and so i started looking for a place to do more finance and so my the u.s mint was my way station and then the FDIC job popped up and there was no doubt. And it was great working with Sheila Baer the chairman at the time, at the height of the financial crisis. I was the media contact for at least 250 failed banks. Wow. And it was really good because I was able to educate reporters on what the FDIC does regarding failed banks. Because a lot of times the headlines were the FDIC closes this bank and it doesn't close the banks. It just acts as receiver. It just does the transaction from the fail bank to the new bank that acquires it. And then in 2019, I thought, you know, I did the math. Uh, originally, I thought I would retire at 67. I thought I did the math. And if, if I work an extra two years from 65 to 67, I would get a whole whopping 30 cents per month more in my pension. <laughs> and I thought, I'm out. <laughs> and so I started uh, narrating audiobooks in 2014, and, you know, did it as a part-time thing. I, I would always tell any author that, look, I have a full-time job. I can't do this uh, quickly. And they were, you know, found some authors that were great with that. I did the first two and I thought, you yeah, know, I need to learn more about the editing side of audiobooks. And, and I'm glad I did because I took that pause. And when I went back to it, I got this author who hired me for this one job. And then a week later, he said, you know, I had this other book out for audition. I don't like any of the people that have auditioned. Can you do this one too? Wow. And now I've done 14 of his books. (laughs) We have a great collaboration going, and he's now become a full-time writer. And so I thought, okay, I was backed up with uh, projects, and I thought, you know, doing it at home in what I called an acoustically treated space, not a booth, uh, was good until the pandemic hit, and my wife works from home uh, all the time now. Yes. And so I can't turn off the A.C. in the summer or the heat in the winter for more than 90 minutes because everybody either gets cold or hot. Right. This June, I said, I like doing this. This is what I want to do until uh, my head hits the microphone. <laughs> and uh, I will just, uh, I bought a nice uh, whisper room and this is where I live uh, most days.
1: <laughs> How do you take care of your voice on a day to day basis? Your voice is your moneymaker at this point. How, you know, do you have a regimen for it or anything you do specifically to keep it healthy?
2: Yeah, I definitely warm up before I I begin any narration. Uh, I found out that uh, the hard way, that if you don't warm up, it is like any muscle. And if you keep it strong and take care of it, it's going to work for you. And as you said, it's like, without a voice, I can't work. So I always am very conscious of the warm up, and I don't narrate for very long at a time, maybe a maximum of two and a half hours. That seems long. Yeah, it's a long time to talk, but the one thing I tell people about audiobooks, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Uh, You have to like this stuff. Uh, Most of the books that Andrew Cunningham writes uh, wind up being about six hours long, but you have to do the math with audiobooks because they say at the beginning, it's a multiple of three, meaning that if it's a six-hour book, it's going to take you 18 hours to do it. Got it. Between the narration, the editing, and the processing, uh, because Audible has certain audio specs that they want you the audio to be. And so that, you know, that takes a little time, but in having it now for 8 years that I've been doing it, I've really gotten the process of editing streamlined. And so, now with the booth, this is the shortest part of the process. Now I a 6-hour book, I'm done in 3 days.
1: Wow. Any as we start to wrap up, Craig, any lessons you can think back to that you learned at JPZ that served you well over your really
2: multifaceted career? I always tell people to, about practical knowledge. I had a lot of professors who did not work in the radio business, but, you know, taught from books. But then Rick Wright shows up, and he knew radio. Yeah. I mean, he knew it inside out. And what a personality we all know about Dr. Wright. Sure. And it's really funny. I'm, you know, 68 years old. I still call my professor Dr. Wright. He just changed everything for me. And not only was I learning about the practical nature of running a radio station, doing a radio show, but it it was something that I took with me forever because uh, if I hadn't done all that work at WJPZ for three and a half years, I would have gone into radio probably as a desk assistant somewhere, (laughs) you know, instead of going right into being an anchor. And so that was the practical knowledge. And it's, it's great listening to all the people that you've already interviewed, because it just seems that WJPZ... Uh, launched everybody into careers that they wanted in the broadcast business with that practical experience behind them. Any funny stories you look back on that you haven't already told that you think about, oh, remember the time when? I sent you that playlist from 1974. So my roommate friend, uh, Jeff Micah, also was a DJ on JBZ, but he was a psychology major. And so this uh, song was on the list from this group called ZZ Top. Hmm. And so uh, it, we couldn't figure out how to pronounce it. You know, there's no Google in that time. So we settled on the word Lagrange. So that's how <laughs> we pronounced it, right? And so years later, after I graduated, I'm driving around Syracuse, and I hear the uh, album-oriented rock station uh, somewhere, uh, I think in Utica. And the guy said, and here is ZZ Top with Lagrange. And I thought, oh, my God, we called it Lagrangi. so that was always something that I remember but I have to tell you these podcasts are a terrific audio history of the greatest media classroom you know I appreciate all the work you've been doing on them and I'm really enjoying hearing how much impact WJPZ has had on so many lives so thank you for doing these And thank you for being one of the folks there at the beginning
1: to get this whole thing started. And it's had a life of itself and an incredible family for 50 years. And that is a tribute to you and to your classmates and to the folks who've come since uh, you've graduated. Greg Hernandez, Hall of Famer, thank you so much for spending some time today. And it's really great to hear all these wonderful stories. And I hope anybody that has not met you since you've been coming back in the last decade or so gets a chance to chat with you in Syracuse in March because it really has been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. right now.